Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Good morning. It's the Bill Handel Show. Where is Bill? Bill is at home recovering from heart valve replacement surgery, and it was an open chest procedure. Don't worry, Jen. I won't go into the graphic details this time. Thank you. But it's a big deal is my point, so it takes some time to recover from something like that. Uh, But he's doing good. He's recovering as expected. Anybody who knew anything about the situation in Afghanistan knew that what happened over the weekend was going to happen, which is to say an entire country's military, police force, and and civil government vanishing. And the Taliban not having to use very much in the way of violence to make it happen. Here's the rub, though. I say anybody who knew what was going on over there would have known. A lot of people who could have known and maybe should have known didn't know. And I'm mostly talking about you and me. Because it turns out that the people on the inside of this decades-long mission uh, to equip and train the Afghan military so that they could have a functioning civil government, the people inside of it knew pretty much the whole time that it was doomed, but we didn't because we were lied to again and again and again. Let us rewind the time machine about 10 years. Summer 2011, Lieutenant General William Caldwell IV goes around making public appearances For example, uh, speaking to the Council on Foreign Relations in June of that year and other places, talking about the incredible progress that we are making with the Afghan military. Quote, we've made tremendous strides, incredible progress. They're probably the best trained, the best equipped, and the best led of any forces we've developed yet. They only continue to get better with time. The Afghan military is like a bottle of Merlot. And he wasn't the only guy going around pushing this narrative. This was the common refrain coming out of our government that it was going like gangbusters over there. That boy, oh boy, those Afghans, they are at the top of their form. 
They're learning it. They're learning it quickly. They are so good. There were there were people saying that basically the Afghan military rivals that of the United States of America. That's how good they are, which is really all about us trying to say how good we are. Underneath that narrative is this idea that we are so amazing that, of course, if we go over there, they're going to become amazing. Our amazingness is going to rub off on them. How could it not? Here's how it could not and did not. Because here is what we now know were some fundamental truths about the effort to train uh, the military in Afghanistan. Number one, the best estimate, the most generous estimate, is that 5% of the uh, Afghan military recruits could read at a third grade level. These were people who were largely illiterate, couldn't count. Uh there's, there's a guy who was working over there who tells a story about, you'd ask a guy, how many brothers and sisters do you have? And they would say, well, I have, you know, John and Tim and Linda and Sharon. But they couldn't say, I have four brothers and sisters. Here's the other thing. Uh, we tried to train them as if they were like us. In other words, we brought a Western military training and structure approach to a place where the people, they're not wired that way. And there's an incident which, if, if all of this wasn't so terrible, if we hadn't spent so much money and lost so many lives, the incident I'm going to tell you about might be comical. It might even be something that you see in a comedy movie except that it's not really funny at all because of the context. But uh, there's a guy, and he's trying to work with this platoon to teach them. This was the training exercise. How to get out of a CH-47 Chinook helicopter. But they didn't have one of those helicopters to use, to train. So the guy sets up uh, a row of folding chairs and he's trying to teach the Afghans how to, how to get out of a helicopter by using rows of folding chairs. And they're doing it. But then two of the Afghan recruits start arguing with each other. One of them picks up one of the folding chairs and bashes the other guy in the face. And it turns into a brawl. These Afghan Recruits are now all fighting with each other. Uh, so the guy who's running the exercise, Major Mark Glaspell, he just goes, I'm just going to let them fight until they get tired out. That is not something that you would ever hear about in, in, in a training here in the United States. But that's the kind of, that's, that's how different fundamentally the society is and the people are, and I don't mean they're different in ways that make them less human or that they don't love their children and they're not capable of great compassion and they're not intelligent, the ones who are educated, but there is a fundamental difference. And we tried to apply 
our template in a place where it didn't work. So the point is this. For just about the last 20 years, from just about when we first went in there after 9-11, the people on the inside knew that at best it was going to be an incredible, almost insurmountable task to whip that country into shape so that we could leave it and it would still stand. And it turned out to be an insurmountable task. And my point is this, that all happened at the same time as inside they were like, oh my God, this is never going to work. They were publicly telling us that it was fantastic. On Friday, President Biden got onto a helicopter to go to Camp David for a vacation. And by Saturday morning, it was no vacation anymore. And the White House released photos of him sitting in that that secure conference room that they have at Camp David. And he's teleconferencing with uh, Vice President Harris and the national security team because, of course, he suddenly had a big mess on his hands, which is how to get everybody out of Afghanistan as quickly as possible. And we know what happened over the weekend. Basically, the Taliban took over the country. That's what happened. So... The first thing that happened is, uh uh-oh, we got big trouble over there, and he has to go into the secure conference room. Then later, Saturday night, um, Chuck Schumer's team invited other uh, lawmakers to to a meeting the next morning, Sunday morning, for a phone briefing. Hey, we want to tell you, like, what's going on with this craziness in Afghanistan? So Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is there. Anthony Blinken is there. uh, Mark Milley is there. And they get their briefing. It was about an hour. And there were some questions. And some of the questions were nice softball questions. And other questions from other lawmakers were pretty antagonistic. As you might imagine. There were two details that came out of this thing that really struck a lot of the other senators One of them is they didn't realize how many people they needed to get out of that country. 60,000 people eligible to be evacuated. And and I guess the other lawmakers didn't realize it was so many. And here's the other thing. Back in June, when they were talking about doing this, they said the, the threat from some uh, terrorist militant group like an al-Qaeda setting up operations in Afghanistan and all of that is pretty low. We're not, we're not really that worried about it. Okay, so over the weekend, lawmakers getting the briefing and they're told, well, it's a medium risk now. It's a medium risk and there could be al-Qaeda or other terrorist organizations operational in Afghanistan and an actual threat to us here in as little as two years from now. So that was the other thing that made the lawmakers on the call go, holy smokes, there's more people we got to get out than we thought. And uh, the risk of Afghanistan returning to being a haven for terrorists is way higher than we thought. Oh, my gosh. So basically... That has fueled the narrative from the politicians that the Biden administration got caught flat-footed, that they bungled it. 
And I think they did bungle it. And I think they bungled it in, in the worst possible way, which is to do everything backwards. Because it seems like this is what they did. They uh, they made sort of big announcements about we're drawing down, we're drawing down, we're getting out. This is when we're out. And then they started, uh, what, destroying documents and computers. And now they're scrambling to get everybody out. It's not how you do it. I've never served in the military. I'm not trying to pretend I have. But I'm not a complete moron. You can look at a situation like that and you can see this is what you do. First, you start destroying the computers and the documents because that is something that can be done pretty quietly, right? Okay. Then you clean out that embassy. Then you get everybody out. Then you make your announcements. That's how you do it. They did it in exactly the wrong order, looks like to me. And that's one of the reasons why it's turned into such a debacle. That's Because in the last segment, we talked about the long-term problems, the problems that were there 20 years ago when we first went in that made what happened here inevitable. And then this is talking about the short-term decisions that were made in the execution of the plan. Hey, let's talk about this. Uh, Some states are finally... Preventing people from lying. Who are the people they're preventing from lying? The police. Who are the police lying to? People that they are interrogating. And the focus of these states is particularly on police lying to kids while they are interrogating them. This has been a problem for a a long time. I will give you one example. Lawrence Montoya. 14 years old at the time, made the bad decision to go on a joyride with his cousin and some other friends. And uh, it turns out the car they were joyriding in had been stolen from a woman who had been murdered. Police caught the driver. The driver gave up the names of everyone else who was on the joyride. They brought them all in. This kid, they put him in the room. They sweat him for two hours. He denies 65 times that he was ever at the house where the murder happened. And by the way, he wasn't at the house where the murder happened. I mean, the main thing you need to know, I'm going to kind of skip to the end so we can go back and evaluate what happened. The guy's totally innocent of the murder. So back, he's being, he's being interrogated. I wasn't there. I wasn't there. They tell him. Oh, yeah? Well, your footprint is in the blood at the house. That was not true. They told him, we've got fingerprints, we've got blood prints, we've got saliva prints. We've got everything. Not true, not true, not true. Well, this goes on for two hours. They threaten him. They make promises of leniency if he'll just confess And look, even a a fully grown, mature, strong adult, at some point, it becomes too much. In this case, it was a 14-year-old kid. So he confesses and he goes to trial. He's convicted. 
He gets life in prison. He serves many, many years in prison until finally, of course, he's exonerated. This is a scenario that's played out again and again and again. Um, And it's totally permissible. The Supreme Court said, I think it was 1969, that case, Frazier versus Cup. They said cops can lie to you when they are questioning you. Because that case was a guy, um, they told him there was a murder, and they told this guy that his cousin had already confessed to the murder and implicated him. And that was not true. So he got convicted, he confessed, and he got convicted, and then he said, hey, you can't convict me. You shouldn't have been able to use my confession because they got it by lying to me. And the Supreme Court said, look, we're not saying that it's not something to think about, but it's okay. Basically, a confession obtained by lying to the person is still admissible in court. So some states now have said, no, 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 we're not going to allow that anymore, especially if it's a kid. So Illinois uh, was the first state to ban police from lying to minors. Oregon, right after that, did it. New York is working on such a law. And I wouldn't be surprised if in a couple of years from now, in a lot of this country, it will be illegal for cops to lie to minors during interrogations. So that's what's going on there. It's, it's bad. Here's the thing. You know, they say torture actually doesn't work. In terms of getting you good, solid information, torture doesn't work, but still people use torture. This is kind of the same thing. Using these interrogation techniques really aren't very good. Um, but cops keep doing them because that's how they're trained to do it. Because there was a guy who became uh, really well-known when he was a cop in Nebraska, he got a guy to confess to a crime. And everybody went, oh, my God, how did, you, how did you manage that? And he went on to write an entire manual. It's called the Reed Technique of Interrogation. It's taught still to this day to many, many, many police departments. The thing about it is, first of all, he disavows some of these techniques. Some people are taking the Reed Technique and then they're making it worse than it's supposed to be. But here's the other thing. The guy who invented the Reed technique, which is the reason cops are lying to people during interrogations, and who was able to write it because he got a confession out of a guy in the, this was in like the 50s. That confession that started him as on, on his career, that was a false confession. And that guy was later exonerated. So in other words, he was a failure who became a big deal. In police interrogation tactics. In my opinion, I guess I should make it clear. In my opinion, he was a big failure because of what happened. I'm not a fan of doing things that are stupid before you even start to do them. If you look at this massive 2,700 page, $550 billion infrastructure thing that passed in the Senate, and I'm all for spending a lot of money on infrastructure. But there's at least one thing in it that is flat out stupid, and it's this. It allows local governments and states and counties, if they have control of a road, 
to lease out those roads to private companies, which would turn them into toll roads. Now, that part of it is not necessarily stupid. It's annoying in the sense of if you live somewhere where there's a lot of toll roads, it's annoying. Even if the tolls aren't that much, it's annoying to have to slow down at the thing and throw a quarter in the basket or buy one of those transponders on your car. And there is, of course, the feeling that, hey, our tax dollars built this road. Why why do I have to pay to drive on it? But the, but the thing that's okay about it is what happens is this is a way to fund road improvements without taxing you. You lease the roads to the private company. They pay to build it out. It's an investment for them into a business, basically. And then you collect the tolls, and that's how they get their money back. It's not a terrible way to get road improvements. Europe, it's everywhere. Australia, it's everywhere. Here's what makes it stupid, though, in this infrastructure bill. The infrastructure bill also says you won't have to pay the toll unless you make more than $400,000 a year. In other words, we're going to have toll roads, but only rich people will pay the tolls. Okay, first of all, there's two obvious stupidities here. One is, how do you know how much people are making? I'm coming in my car. Here comes the toll booth. Do I pay or not? Who knows? How do you know I'm supposed to pay or I don't have to pay? Honor system? You know, people from other states can drive into your state on your toll road and you don't even have, you're not going to be in the system. You could say, well, in California, we'll take everybody's tax information and we'll put it into a big database and then everybody will get a transponder and your transponder will be programmed pay or no pay. Okay, so now somebody from Arizona comes to visit. Now what do you do? So that's weird because paying or not paying is based on something how, that they can't possibly know in the moment. And the other thing is, how are you going to make enough money to get any private company to want to get involved in this? If they can charge everybody a toll, you'll have companies lining up. But if you tell them tolls will only come from people making over 400 grand a year, they'll say, well, we could not possibly make enough money to justify spending millions and millions and maybe even a billion dollars, depending on the project. And then we can only charge the, quote, rich people tolls. We'll never make our money back. So the whole thing, as a practical matter, is dead on arrival. Uh, I think the House can mess with this. And maybe they'll change it. Maybe they'll finally, the final version of this infrastructure bill won't be so weirdly impossible to implement as to the toll road thing. But for right now, as it sits and what was passed in the Senate, uh, it's kind of hella dumb. Oh, my gosh. A lot of money was given to the state of California uh, to help people pay their rent during the pandemic. And uh, we're blowing it. Apparently, it's too complicated to apply. And they are really dragging their feet in getting that money out. California's rental assistance program. They had to set it up very quickly. Can we can we be fair and agree on that? It's not like they had 
a year to think about how do we want to set up this program? How will it work? How do you apply? What are the requirements, et cetera? Okay, they had to work quickly, so I certainly give them that in the state government. $5.2 billion to help low-income tenants and their landlords. Another $2 billion uh, if you are having trouble paying your utility bills. That's a lot of money. Now, first problem, applying, depending on where you are, can be and has been a nightmare, a nightmare. Let's talk about one person uh, who's profiled in the Daily Mail. Tanya Aldacoa, I hope I'm saying that right, is from Whittier, mother of three, was on unemployment. The unemployment ran out, couldn't pay the rent, goes to the website to apply for this rental assistance program, Took nine hours to go through the process, filling out a bunch of forms, had to upload copies of the electric bill and the gas bill, of her lease, of her tax returns, of her Medi-Cal certification letter from the state. And weeks went by before she got any response about it. And that's just one example, because people are reporting having to resubmit forms over and over again. Just a real mess on the front end. That is people getting into the system and getting approved to get the money. And maybe that's why on the back end, only $282.4 million has been given out, out of $5.2 billion dollars. This pandemic has created a weird dynamic in California. I mean, I think of California, I'm trying to talk about the government now. I think of the government in California as being like, man, if there's money to spend, we are like the flash. We can spend it like that. Hey, we have $80 billion for such a program. How long do you think you'll need to spend it? We already spent it before you finished asking the question. Something about this pandemic aid, though, has caused things to move at a pace of molasses. And this is a good example of it, because if you have $5.2 billion available and you've only handed out, you've handed out less than $300 million, that's unlike what we're used to around here. And the answer may be in the first part of the problem that uh, they, they, they made the requirements to apply. I don't mean the, the requirements to qualify. I'm not saying they made those requirements too harsh or too hard, but the requirements to apply just way too hard for people. If you if you go through all of that, imagine spending nine hours going through a whole process, and then like two weeks later, you get a letter that's like, or an email, whatever you get. Oh, we need that thing again. We need a copy of your lease again. What? Oh, my God. You got to go drag that thing out, upload it again. So that's one problem. Here's another problem. So the state, of course, can give money to different localities. Now what happens is you have different requirements. Imagine living in, I'm just going to name, I'm going to make up a city because I don't want to. Imagine you live in Mellon City, California. 
All right. And Melon City is in Cantaloupe County. Sounds like a fruity place. Yeah. So you're smells great. <laughs> so you're so you're looking at, at rental assistance programs, right? And you're looking all around the state just to see what's going on. And you go, oh, if I lived in Honeydew County, I would I would qualify for rental assistance. But I don't. I live in Cantaloupe County. I don't I don't qualify. That doesn't seem really right to me. So that's another source of frustration is the, the, the more that you decentralize things, the more you end up with inequities like this. And inequities also breed confusion. So you have people who really don't know if they qualify or not, and it's too hard to find out. Here's another problem. And this has to do with decisions that people made without realizing the ramifications. So some people, they became unable to pay their rent because of the pandemic. I'm, and I'm only talking here. Everything I'm saying, I'm talking about legitimate people who legitimately were impacted by the pandemic and and deserve relief. The, the other issue of fraud and stuff, that's a completely separate issue. So pandemic, lose the job, can't pay the rent. One person stops paying the rent. Can't pay it, not going to pay it. Can't pay it. Somebody else uses their credit card to pay the next month's rent. Or, I don't know, a payday loan. Or borrows money from their sister. And they pay their rent. The first person can get relief through this program. The second person cannot. They now, because, because instead of not paying their rent, they took on debt, shadow debt. Can't get reimbursed for your shadow debt. And I know, look, I hear some of you and I don't disagree. So basically the person who did the right thing or closer to the right thing now gets screwed. The person who just said, I can't pay, I'm not going to pay, I'm done paying, they can get reimbursed or they can get rent relief, I should say. They can get the rent relief. And the person was like, oh, I still, I still feel an obligation to pay my landlord. I'll put it on my credit card this month and hope things get better. They're out in the cold. So from the way it was conceived to the way that the application process was put into place to the weirdness that uh, the government is suddenly slow to hand out money, in some areas, it's kind of a disaster. There's one maybe little uh, silver lining to this cloud, and that is that the feds, the Treasury Department, has come out with guidance that says, look, let people just attest to their income and their how much rent they owe and that it was because of the pandemic. Don't require them to spend nine hours uploading all this stuff. That's the Treasury Department saying it. And so, so we're going to see it become a little easier for people to apply and to get the money with the side note that it will be easier for fraud to occur. Because you know what? You can't. There's no way to do anything. There's no way to do anything without fraud. You realize that. You cannot find me any government program, federal, state, County, city, unincorporated, 
building that's its own thing. You can't find me one that does not have significant amounts of fraud attached to it. It comes with the territory. That's something we all got to accept. Government program, some of that money's going to fraud, no matter what you do or how hard you try. I would not want to be Edwin Moscoso right now. Because you may not know the name, but when I tell you why his name is in the news, you will shake your fist at him. As all baseball fans who have ever had the um, pleasure, in finger quotes, of attending a game where he was the umpire, have shaken their fist at him. He is the number one botcher of calls at the plate in Major League Baseball. What I mean is saying it's a strike when it was a ball and saying it's a ball when it was a strike. He's the guy. How do we know this? Well, if you've ever watched uh, a baseball game in the last, oh my gosh, 10 years, maybe? You know that we have technology now that can track the ball going over the plate and can tell you uh, where, where it breaks and the speed and where in the strike zone it crossed the plate. So, the Washington Post decided to gather a whole bunch of data comparing the calls that umpires made and the actual position of the ball as it crossed the plate. Uh, They got a lot of data by a company called True Media. True Media provides data analytics to over 100 pro sports teams. They do data analytics and visualizations and video scouting, and it's like super high-tech stuff. So the Washington Post got all of this information together, crunched the numbers, and here we go. It's getting worse. Basically, the, the bottom line is umpires are screwing it up at the plate more than probably they ever have. Now, there's something inherently uh, fluid about having a human being who's standing behind the plate and looking at a ball that's coming across that plate at 80, 90, 100 miles an hour sometimes, and and deciding whether that ball crossed the plate within that special area of the strike zone, right, which is what? the Is it the midpoint between the shoulders and the top of the uniform pants and then a the kneecap or something, at or below. Anyway, so there's always going to be mistakes, and there always have been mistakes, and it's a classic part of baseball, the old, like, uh, ball. That was a strike, right? And the manager comes out, and he kicks the dirt at the umpire. Uh, it's It's a real staple of the game, although you're not supposed to approach anymore, right? You're not supposed to approach to argue about the call anymore. So that if a manager does that, they're thrown out of the game. However, my point being, everybody understands there's going to be some mistakes. But man, oh man, there seem to be a lot of them, and there are more and more every year. In 2020, using this analysis, there were 
11,644 bad calls on balls and strikes. So far this season, just through August 1, 19,300 incorrect calls. This gets to an area where you could win or lose a game based on a series of bad calls. Nobody knows why it's happening. They just know that it's happening. And it's not apparently being evenly distributed across teams. So, for example, the Texas Rangers, for some reason, pitchers on the Rangers have a very low rate of incorrect calls by the umpire. But the Baltimore Orioles have the highest rate. Now, do we, is this some organized thing where umpires are like, look, when it's the Orioles and it's close and you know that it, you know it was a strike, but it was close, you call that as a ball because we're, we got it in for the Orioles. We hate the Orioles. I, I don't think that's what's happening, but there's nothing that can explain why the eyes and brains of umpires this year are so much worse than last year. And the year before that, and the year before that. And I guess if this trend continues long enough, you'll start to see, like, pitch, and the batter has to, like, step out two steps to even try to hit it, and it'll get called as a strike. And you'll see one right dead center down the strike zone, ball. I mean, at some point, they'll never get a call right. Hating on the umps is uh, as much a part of the game as baseball as hot dogs in the stands and bobblehead days. But I don't know why the umpires can't get their act together. And I and you know what? I'll just end with this. Why are we using human umpires to decide if it was a strike or a ball? We have the technology to evaluate their accuracy. Why don't we just use the technology to make the decision? then we wouldn't have this problem anymore because nobody's coming out of the dugout to kick dirt on a computer. It's KFI AM640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.